0: The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This is EZ and this is The Candid Frame. When we think of the many iconic images that have been made during the short history of photography, many of these photographs have been made by photojournalists. Whether it's Bill Eppridge's photo of a mortally-wounded Robert Kennedy on the kitchen floor of the Ambassador Hotel, or Alfred Eisenstadt's photograph of a sailor planning a kiss on a nurse in New York City at the end of World War II, these are images that are etched in our collective psyche, capturing humanity at its best and at its worst. There have been many changes in the world of journalism over the last few decades. Not all of them good, but one thing that persists is the passion and the commitment of men and women who want to use the camera to tell stories that we as individuals aren't privy to, but that we want or need to know about. Jonathan Alcorn has been making this pursuit of the story his life's work, a position that has placed him right in the middle of the most dramatic and perilous moments in the recent history of Los Angeles. He is another example of a photographer whose intention is not merely to make a pleasing photograph, but to create images that say something about who we are, and where we are, and where we're going. It is not an easy thing to do, and it's often underappreciated, but I for one am glad that there are people like Jonathan out there, raising the camera and making the effort to make images that can and do matter. Well, thanks for doing this.
1: Man, I'm... It's a long time coming. It's good to do it, and uh, you know, I wish we had done it sooner, but it's good to do it today.
0: Uh, no, I really enjoyed your presentation that you did in Seattle. It was, you know what was really interesting? That that photo that you took after the uh, the earthquake, the Northridge. I remember seeing that photograph uh, the next day, and then the years later to recognize, oh, now I know the guy who took that photograph.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was my... That was... Uh, <laughs> You know that was uh, definitely the biggest moment in my career up to that point, and maybe still to this day in yeah, my mind.
0: I think so because it's 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 a it's a photograph that sticks in my mind. Uh, I have seen it a couple of times, but it's one of those images that it's just sort of etched there. Um, it's hard to to think about uh, looking at a single photograph that captures the essence of an earthquake. Yeah, the the devastation that an earthquake can have. And we've seen plenty of pictures where buildings have collapsed and things like that. But when you see something that isn't supposed to collapse, a freeway, it gives you a, a completely different context for how impactful that that event was. How, you know how big it was. You look at that and you just go, "Wow, that's a whole new whole new level." Why don't you start off with telling us the story of? Of that day and and how you came to make that picture. Okay,
1: um, I had been working late that night on a on a stakeout on some you know some police were chasing somebody and we I was out there till about two in the morning. Got home around three. Probably fell asleep around three thirty or four. And I was I, I woke up to I was screaming literally. Uh, it was shaking so hard where I lived and. Every, they're flashing, and it was just the loudest sound ever. And then it stopped, and I went outside, and my neighbors were freaking out. And I talked to them for about five minutes, and I was like, thinking in my head, like, I gotta go. Hmm. I don't know where it was, but it was close. I knew it was close because it shook so hard. So I just got on the freeway, four o five, got headed on the ten uh, east. I was heading towards downtown because still then, they even on the radio, they weren't saying, oh, the epicenter's here or whatever. So I'm going, I get to about almost to La Cienega, and I see a, a CHP officer waving his flashlight frantically to get off the road. So I pull off the freeway, and I'm coming down the, off the ramp, and I look over, and I see a collapsed freeway. Right away, my head was like, wait, is that? Are you really seeing that? And I'm like, oh, my God. And then even right then, I'm still like trying to get information on the radio, and then I hear, oh, there's a lot of damage in the valley. So I'm like, I didn't even take a picture of that because I think it was just too much for me to process even Mm -hmm. right then. I'd never seen anything like that. So I just started to drive towards the valley. And I remember coming up over the Sepulveda Pass, and there was about – Ten huge fires, and all the lights were out. So all you could see were these huge fires. And it was, it was surreal. So I just went to the closest fire at first and uh, took some photos of that. And uh, there was a water main break there. And a couple of photographers got swept away by the water and lost their gear and were asking me if I had an extra camera. And just things were happening that were just so mind-blowing. You're just like, I kept thinking to myself, is this really happening? And then I got in the radio and I heard at first light they had they saw the the uh, where the the overpass had fallen up at the I five and fourteen freeway. So I'm like, oh, that I should go up there. When I when I got there, I I actually crawled underneath where it had crushed with another photographer. He's like, hey man, let's let's go under. There's a tunnel. We can get to the other side. And I was like, okay, and there. There was like a little aftershock while we were under there. And, you know, my heart was pounding. But then I just, I just looking at that scene, uh, my brain just over and over was going like, I, I would have to look away because it was just, it was too much for me to, to process. But I knew, okay, I'm going to go up on this hillside. And I, I went up on the hill and, I just remember it was a, a long, pretty long climb straight up this hill, and I got to the top, shot that photo, and, you know, like, after that, I... Can
0: you, can you describe the photo for people who haven't seen it?
1: So, gosh, I think, so what happened was, it's a big overpass, it's curving, and there's like two freeways there, and then there's mountains on each side, or big hills, and it had basically just completely collapsed, and a LAPD motorcycle officer had been after the earthquake, just driving to go downtown. I guess to work is something I read, and he didn't even know it had fallen, and he took you know, he took it a jump right off of it and, and crashed to his death. So you see that his body was covered. I think can't remember exactly. Yeah, it was. It was covered, and there were cars like that had fallen off, as the roadside had fallen were still there and it was just i mean a movie a movie couldn't even make it look that good well maybe now they could with CGI but yeah. so it was it was just the whole time i just had to keep checking in with myself and trying to keep my mind from just going nuts. like what are
0: you, what are you seeing this is just unreal i i wonder at a moment like that when you're seeing something and it's you're still experiencing shock in terms of what's happening, you're not really processing it, and you're realizing this is—it's bigger than you even initially felt it. Even though you felt like it was a bad earthquake, when you see something like that, you realize how bad it is. And this is just one location. You're seeing the fires. Yeah. Does what kicks in in that moment? Is it your training? Is it? Do you just shut yourself down to just say, "I gotta focus. I gotta get work done. I gotta make. I gotta make photographs." And that other part of you just wants to, I don't know what. You know, the thing the thing that happens
1: then for me is I'm hoping there's another photographer there so I can actually talk to someone and we can, because that, that helps. And that's through the years I've noticed that whenever I'm at something. We'll almost talk, we won't really even talk about what we're seeing. We'll, we'll kind of almost maybe try to lighten the mood a little bit or mm-hmm. something with each other. It kind of helps because, and then the camera itself is a shield. Have, I think it would be harder just to stand there and look at it than actually go like, okay, I have to take some photos now and like change lenses or whatever and think about that stuff is a little bit of a shield from those things because it is it is, and impacts me and whoever else is there. And, and, and it's shocking. You know.
0: So how did that the rest of that day play out? Because you were you were, you were shooting, shooting film. Shooting film. Were- I
1: shot that on. Uh, I think it might have been Velvea even Chrome, because the light it was, you know, morning light. Um, I drove down to the LA Times in the afternoon. I probably got down there around one, um, and uh, processed the film. <laughs> and this is the funny part is. I was like, oh, I have this one roll of slide film I, I forgot to process. And they're like, oh, that, we can do E6 as well on a different machine in a different part of the lab. So we developed that, and they're like, oh, wow, these are amazing. And then um, so I, I drove home. I had to go all the way around because the, the 10 was shut completely, so I took the long way, and there were fires still breaking out, and it was chaos. People were running through red lights, and... I just wanted to get home. At that point, I had pretty much not slept in 36 hours. Basically, oh, wow. it was dangerous to be on the streets because everyone was pan- there was a lot of panic going on, like in the cars not not so much in the... Like I went into some stores like on the way home to get some water and stuff, and people were sort of trying to help each other out. It wasn't like how it usually is here. <laughs> 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 that was kind of nice to see. But the people driving it was nuts. I was like, I have to get off the streets because I, people were just blowing through major intersections because the lights were were down. Yeah. So I got home, and, and, and no power at home, and you know, it, we went to sleep pretty early, and I got a call um, probably around 9.30 from Raleigh Souther, who had been my photo editor at the Star News when I worked there. He was at the LA Times, and he goes, hey, I just wanted to let you know we're running your photo on A1 tomorrow. And it, you know, it's a it's a tremendous achievement personally, and but this horrible thing has happened, and I love right. Los Angeles, and I never knew how to really talk about that back then. Like it was tough for me to go to feel what I I was feeling different emotions all at the same time. I can imagine I, I had some I was compromised a little bit. Like oh, I'm I'm doing well over other people's deaths and destruction, and so that was. I kind of went into a weird period after that, actually, a little bit, personally. I had some personal stuff, like anxiety issues had come up, and I don't know if it was all from that, but...
0: It it must be weird to be congratulated for something that you achieved, that that you did your job, you did it professionally, but there was a life that was lost.
1: I think there was like fifty-six lives lost that yeah. day. Or but that photograph, right? yeah, that, guy that photograph the is a officer. you know
0: that is a particular person. I think Clarence Dean was his name. But yeah. So I can I can I can I can understand the sort of like I didn't even remember there.
1: seeing his his body on the. When I didn't even remember that. I, I blocked it out or something like because when we looked at it, I'm like oh oh yeah, there it is, like. You know, so it was like I saw it my with my own eyes closer even from where i they, the photo that ended up running, I saw it way closer than that, mm-hmm. yet, when I looked at the film that evening or that afternoon at the paper, it was like, "Oh, there's a body there and that that shows me that the mind protects itself somehow yeah. or, well, I've know.
0: talked to some journalists, and sometimes they have a maybe it's just a facade to protect themselves, but they have this whole sort of facade about it. That they look at what's happening in front of them as all these just these various elements, and that they if they have photographed something that's particularly tragic, you know, like like I heard one photographer when they uh, were talking about they had shot this accident, um, they made a point that well nobody died so they're not going to use it yeah and it was just it was kind of shocking to hear yeah. someone talk about talk about it in that kind of frankness and i'm sure that you have people in in your world that are like that but you don't strike me as being that kind of person but what have let's just say first that your work isn't like that all the time no it's not so it's very occasionally but there are moments where where you are having to document someone else's tragedy yes and how have you come to terms with that that is sometimes part of your your job <sighs> it's well, it's definitely part of my job
1: and and I do feel like you know, I was inspired by other people's photographs that changed the world that are heartbreaking. You know, like Nick Ut's photo of course and Eddie Adams and we can go on and on with and I guess I feel like I'm part of that fraternity where I I'm actually, I can go do that and then you still get some kind of professional I don't know, boost from it or mm-hmm. whatever. That's just part of how it is. But I don't know. It It is hard for me to come to terms with even to this day. But at the same time, my father had Alzheimer's and he lived a long time with it because he was very healthy. And um, the last year or so, every time I went, I would document the whole thing because it's the camera helps me in those situations. And I think It extended from work into my personal life right then it helped me to be there just to be able to like oh I gotta get the light right Mm -hmm. or take the settings right just those little things helped me to turn the brain off a little bit from all the from seeing sadness or destruction Mm -hmm. or people in pain but those photos are super powerful at the same time and I think they need to be seen I really do as long as it's not gratuitous or if there has to be some context to it and You know, we have things now that'll run any, they'll just run almost anything. And I still feel proud to be part of like, there's certain things I just won't turn in or I won't shoot it even like, you know, like an actual corpse or where you could identify someone. Mm -hmm. I just, to me, I don't know. It's just never, I've never had to make that decision. Thank God. Would I go with a picture like that or not? Because there are photos like the falling man at World Trade Center. Like what an amazing photo and and impactful and just wild and crazy and heartbreaking all at the same time. And even a photo like that, you have to, you you're, I think most photographers would be like, at least think twice about it. Like, okay, I'm going to turn
0: this in, but it's. Yeah. yeah. Part of that is that you take the picture. Yeah. It, it, you decide later whether or not, well, sometimes you don't have any say about whether it runs or not, but you take the picture. And I think that's. If you're not able to do that, then that's the right wrong gig for you. Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you were talking about some of your inspirations. Do you remember uh, a particular set of photographs, a photo story uh, that early on that you saw? And it was like, man, I really aspire to do something along those lines. Yeah,
1: the, the uh, Eugene Smith story uh, uh, at the the Fish story. Minamata? Uh, yeah, Minamata. Yeah. I remember I went and saw an exhibition from that. It was like maybe in eighty six when I was like, I want to be a photojournalist. So I started to go to every little exhibition I could, and I went and saw that and I thought, Oh, look, you can change the world, you know. I was at that time that's what I wanted to do anyway. I was thinking about being a teacher or something. Mm-hmm. And I remember that that series of images, they were so beautifully heartbreaking. You know, they were so bittersweet and sad, and, and but it gave me hope in, in humanity to see people caring for each other and just all the emotions. It just seems so real. It just it just spoke to me, I guess, you know?
0: You had aspirations of becoming a teacher and then you'd gotten into photography. What's, what's, what's that story? Uh, well, <laughs> I didn't think I could ever
1: make it as a photographer. No, everyone pretty much told me it would never happen. Um, so I had about plan B, plan C, plan D, but I, I worked. I worked actually at the YMCA when I was in Junior college at Pasadena City College. I worked at the Y as a uh, camp counselor, after school counselor, summer counselor, and it was ama- uh, just an amazing experience. I mean, I learned so much being having some being in charge of some children and watching them. I saw some grow up over three, four years, which was really awesome and super rewarding. And but I stayed at photography, even though I. I was not good.
0: That <laughs> was not good.
1: <laughs> I didn't even know how to focus. Like I would think things were in focus. And the teacher would be like, look, the print's not in focus. I'm like, you sure? Like It, it was hard for me to grasp how. Yeah. I mean, it, I always wanted to be an artist, and I never was one until I finally learned how to maybe create smart with the camera. But I aspired to be an artist at an early age. I just, I didn't see, I wasn't a drawer, I wasn't a sculptor. A musician, I tried that a little bit. Photography, for some reason, I didn't give up on so quickly. Bob was always, I always loved it. You know, I loved it. I had pictures covering my bedroom wall, head to uh, ceiling to floor, mm. Sports Illustrated, surfing, Time Magazine, Life Magazine. Um, I remember getting a Life Year in Pictures in 1976 when I was sick. My dad brought me the year in pictures and it was just, I must've looked at that thing a million times, you know, it just blew me away. And I was like, what an amazing way to make a living. And then it turned out that my, my mom, one of her cousins was married to a a photographer that worked for probably 50 years in the business. He was one of the UPI's leading photographers forever, uh, Carlos Shebeck. And he came over and we had a barbecue and he was talking about covering the World Cup and he had just been with Castro on a boat and smoking cigars with him, doing a feature on Fidel Castro and I was a news junkie even when I was a little kid. Yeah. And I was just like, whoa, and I just so I would like sit in front of the TV and watch the news or the Laker game and pretend I was taking pictures with a little Kodak one ten oh, yeah. camera thing with no film in it, just pretending Me too. You did that too I'd sit cross-legged, like I'd see them behind the basket. Even yeah. I—I just—it's called Dogtown for a reason. Yeah, yeah that—that's um, funny. But uh, so so at junior college, I'm like, you know, I'm just going to take a photo class because I want to learn how to operate a 35 millimeter camera. You know, all I ever shot with, with all I ever shot with was Polaroid, Instamatics, and the little Kodak. 110 cartridge cameras that i bought for my mom for mother's day and only i ever used it <laughs> yeah. right so because those 35 millimeter cameras back back then we're talking this was 1985 84 i had no clue in the world how to do that but i wanted to you know, i
0: think that when when i think of photojournalism the the biggest challenge has nothing to do with the camera really it's 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 about uh, a certain mindset uh persistence, a, a willingness not to accept that first no for an answer. I think that's the hardest part of of the job and there's no real training for it. So tell me about that learning experience. Cause I know there are certain personalities that they seem they come out of the womb with this sort of aggressive, you know, tenacious sort of attitude. It's like Yeah. I'm getting my effing picture, yeah, sort of thing. I yeah. mean, they, some people are just a force of personality, mm-hmm. and then there, and then there's everybody else. Yeah. So where kind of where do you fit between, <laughs> you know, the extreme of being that kind of sort of, you know, voracious person who's going to get their photo no matter what, and someone else who's completely incapable of being able to even open up their mouth and ask to make a, a photograph. So t- tell me about who you are
1: with respect to that. That was one of my biggest battles from the very beginning. When I first started getting jobs where the Pasadena Star News was sending me out to the Temple City High School basketball game. And I thought I would show up and I'd be like, I'm going to have to walk down in front of everyone and stand right under the basket where no one else is. And that was like, put up or shut up. And I think that just doing it those first few times really helped me because there's no way I would have done it if I had been there like on a self assignment or probably even a school assignment. I to, I didn't want anyone to notice me back then. I was kind of an introvert. I became I was I don't want to get too deep psychologically, but I was kind of born extroverted, I think, and I became introverted through my like adolescence and mm-hmm. just stuff happening at home and all that, and kind of withdrew and I, I just didn't want to be noticed. But I kind of realized like even with a camera, even though it's sort of voyeuristic a little bit, you still have to go walk in front of a lot of people a lot of the time and be in places where no one else is supposed to stand and push and push the limits of where you can be. And ah, that, you know, even to this day, there's times I'm like, I don't really want to make a scene here. I try not to use the flash whenever I can, just because that's so obtrusive. And I try to leave as little mark as I can, but it's so obvious I'm there
0: always, it seems like. Can you tell me of a story of an early incident in which you had to push huh. and move past that discomfort in order to get the shot, and then getting the shot was really... Not only was it a shot that you were pleased with that got the job done, but that really spoke to, I can do this. So I would
1: say that was probably be covering brush fire, you know, like... I remember back then we didn't have you know now when I go out, I have all the protective gear and fire jackets and I can goggles and back then you didn't and it was extremely dangerous I think and I'm surprised more photographers didn't lose their lives because the smoke you you couldn't see you couldn't breathe, and once you can't see or breathe, that's it pretty much yeah. and so there were some times where a couple of those I remember where i- re- i said i got to go through this." It was a little canyon full of smoke, and I thought, I need I got to get to the other side here. And I tried to run through that canyon, holding my breath. And about 15, 20 20 yards in, I went, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. And I turned back around, and I made it back, and I was gasping for air. And then a fire truck came on this little dirt road, and they were like, do you want to ride up with us? And I was like, wow, of course I do. (laughs) Thank you, but... Because I was ready to pack it in, but just serendipitously, you know, um, they, they helped me out. And that's, that happens all the time to this day. People help me out. I, you know, I, I try to be kind to people and um, not obtrusive, and
0: um, there's a fine skill to it, for sure. Yeah. Covering, wildfires, f- covering wildfires is probably one of the most dangerous things that you can do as a photojournalist in Los Angeles uh yeah just because when you're in the midst of that i mean you can't be shooting that stuff from far in no. order to get the get get the shot you're getting in there you're in the midst of that everyone's and
1: evacuating and fleeing and you're running in with the fire department
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and those things move so fast mm-hmm. and with the winds the way they are sometimes it can be completely unpredictable yeah so um what are some of the considerations you're having to make when you go in there? I mean, you talk about having protective gear now. Oh, yeah. But, you know, what else do you have to think about it in terms of where you're going to go in, how long you're going to stay there, what you need to pay attention to to make sure that you get out of there alive? Well, you know,
1: we often I'll team up with another photographer. Um, we'll, we'll keep our we'll caravan, or we stay. That's the best way to be for sure. You don't want to be alone out in a fire area. Or I'll go, if there's no other photographers, I'll, st- I'll try to stay near the firefighters. I always keep my car very close so I can get out with the keys in it, ready to go. Usually pointed, like, I've learned, I've taken some courses, so I know what to do. But basically, it's just keep your eyes peeled 360 degrees and watch the firefighters, because when they, that was appropriate, <laughs> when, they, when, they, when they start to go, it's time to go. Yeah. Like, no matter what. And I see people staying. It's just not worth it. I mean.
0: uh That's what God created, insurance. For sure. For yeah. sure. I mean, those and firefighters then, that lost their lives when that thing, it was some years ago, probably eight, nine years ago. Yeah. Where they, they The they truck was overrun. Yeah. And
1: I heard that. And I was like, I, I couldn't believe it, actually. I, I couldn't. That, that was another one where I'm like, no way. Like, my mind was going somehow protecting me to not go oh that could happen to you but I think about it now I think about it now and I I've taken some more I just recently have been doing some online training on fires that uh, Reuters asked me to take and I learned some new things that I'm glad I know like to see where the where it's going but I'm glad I haven't had to cover one of those in a while just because they're so dangerous and then and then the aftermath we always have to go cover that after and talk about having to Going to a place where you don't want to be someone digging through the ashes of their house or trying to find their rings. I've done all those things. and
0: So how do you approach someone like that? You see them uh, sifting through the ashes. They've lost everything. And you want to go out and take a photograph. What what, yeah. what have you said?
1: I definitely offer my condolences. And, and I explain who I'm there for. And, you know, I ask them if it's okay if I photograph what's going on and... If they say no, I'm out of there in a second. And if they say yes, I still take my time. And I don't start shooting pictures right away. That's one of the toughest things that there is to do for me. And the people are usually in shock. And I think maybe they'd not They'd probably say no if they weren't sometimes. Because more than often, they'll say it's okay. I've had people have the exact opposite reaction. And, you know, in that situation, you you let them say whatever they have to say and you get away from leave as soon as you can to get away from not you don't want to make it worse for them i already did and just being
0: there so it's uh it's touchy well then you got the other challenge which is photographing portraits of celebrities yeah (laughs) (laughs) which has its own (laughs) set of obstacles yes um that's very different from what we've been talking about thus far yeah um tell me about the challenges about doing that and what skills did you have to learn to be able to be effective with you know having to photograph actors and and musicians and politicians all within very usually tight restrictions
1: that's the main thing it's usually a minute or two or five minutes you know so I've learned to control my nervousness to the point that it doesn't affect my work because I'm I'm still nervous in those situations when it's, when they say you have two minutes and I, and I need two different shots and I have a couple of little lights and I don't, you know, most clients aren't even paying for a, for an assistant anymore. So I'm like literally moving lights and doing two shots in five minutes and I'll start sweating. I just let it all go. And I'm just, I think, usually the talent can see them working really hard and trying to, to do something nice, and they've been through it so many millions of times that mm-hmm. they're they're cool with it. But like a business person, it's different with them. It's one shot. And
0: Can, can so. you give me a specific example? I mean, like, for example, you're often called to photograph these celebrities in hotel rooms.
1: I've got a good right. one. So is it okay to use names? Yeah. Okay, so uh, I was shooting... What's his name from The Wrestler? Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke, yeah. So I had an assignment to go get a portrait of him on, on on, you know one of one of those those days where they have the photo calls all day long they do five ten minute interviews and pictures for like two three minutes and then another all day long mine was at four thirty, so right away I went uh-oh, uh-oh. they're going to be tired and Mickey Rourke never met him but I've seen a lot of his work and I know about him and I was like well this could go one of two ways <laughs> <laughs> so I walk in and they're like, you're going to be, it's going to take a little more time. I come in, they're like, no lights. He's going to be sitting right where he's sitting, and you have like a minute. And I'm like, at that point, I'm just like, oh, just let me in there. I'm going to see whatever I can do. I will push it to the max. He has his sunglasses on. He's smoking. There's drinks and stuff. All I'm like, Mickey, can you can you take your glasses off? Do you mind? It's super dark sunglasses. And No one ever wants that, mm-hmm. unless it's Stevie Wonder or something, right? So... He's like, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not taking my son. And I'm shooting like a celebrity portrait at like 1600 at thirtieth at two eight in the corner of a hotel room. Not even near. He wouldn't even move towards the window. And uh, he took the glasses off for about a quarter of a second. He did a little flip where I could see his eye. And right when he did it, it was a thirtieth of a second, and he moved so it wasn't sharp at all. Mm -hmm. I had to take that one. He just wouldn't do it. I, I kept trying to cajole him. He wasn't pissed at me, but he was about to be. Yeah. And then Mark Cuban one time, I had a pretty good shoot with him. He was actually pretty cool. And we were we were talking basketball. And um at the end he was like, Okay, thanks, man, it was great. And his assistant was like, He's looking for a new headshot, so we want to be in touch. And I'm like, Okay, awesome. I'm packing up my lights, and I see him out on this balcony, and he's like talking to, to his assistant, and I'm like, God, oh, the light is amazing right there. I'm like, I'm going to just ask him. And I go out there and I'm like, hey, Mark, can I get a few more? Uh, just one more shot. He's like, what? no, I guess. Like, And it just it ruined the whole vibe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like, do you want to always push it? Sometimes you need to just go, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> and they never contact me about the head shot. Uh, so. They're locked. I, I think I knew right then that was done because he's a busy man and I get it. I just thought we had built up. I thought I took a chance, like, you know. I wanted to get as many cool shots of him as I could because he's always in the news. and and, uh, So that was a a tough one. But I've had actors tell tell me after one frame, hey, did you get it? Are you good? Can we go? Like one frame. Yeah. (laughs) And sometimes I do, but that's very rare. It's usually the last frame.
0: Yeah, because you got to appreciate the fact that they, like you said, they're on a junket, so they're getting bombarded. You know, mostly by stupid questions, mm-hmm. you know, that they've been asked thousands and thousands of thousand times before. A photographers going in there, you know, making their snaps, and they're just, they just want to get through their day.
1: They're tired. Yeah. There's all kinds of people standing around. And you're trying
0: to get your special oh, attention yeah. out of this person. And
1: when I am, there's publicists and, and who knows who, uh, makeup people, and everybody's crowding around. And I, I like to clear the room if I can, but sometimes. I just had to make the call, like, I'm not even going to make a scene, I'm just going to try to get this done as as quickly as possible, because I, I if I have a good shot lined up and that's lit well, and it's a professional actor, I know we can do something pretty decent pretty quickly.
0: Do you want to tell us a
1: Robert Blake story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I was on an assignment from people to go over to Robert Blake's house after he had gotten out of, I think he was in jail, it was... Yeah, he'd been in jail for a while. And he was I think he got off on some murder charge or something. Mm-hmm. So I'm parked out on his street about three or four houses down with at the time I had an assistant and he we used to hang out a lot and we we're just sitting in my little black C R X thinking we're all low profile and, and I, you know, Robert Robert Blake, you know he's kind of a loose cannon, right? So <laughs> I look over and I see him walking towards us and I'm just and he has his hand in his pocket. And he's walking fast, and he has a scowl on his face. And I'm like, hello, sir. And he goes, what are you doing here? I'm here for People Magazine. They sent me to shoot today. I'm trying to get some pictures of you. Congratulations, or whatever I said to him in the moment. I tried to cajole him. He goes, well, I, I really don't want you here, and I need you to go right now. And I made the call because he was aggressive, like very aggressive. He was in my car, like in right in my oh, face. Yeah. We we left. I called the editor, and she was like, "Yeah, let it go." <laughs> <laughs> I got out of there quickly.
0: <laughs> okay. But uh, you know, but the the life of a photojournalist involves a lot of a lot of waiting. You know, yeah. We've been talking about some really dramatic events over the last half half hour, mm-hmm. but you know, your normal course of your day is not, you know, it's not a, a a Bruckheimer film. No, you know, so. What's what's the toughest part now of, <laughs> of of being a modern photojournalist? The toughest part.
1: Well, I would say the pay, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I tell people I'm a professional driver and I take I take pictures sometimes. <laughs> I literally, that's like my go-to. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I could tell people. Well, anyone can now with ways and all the apps, but I I've known all the shortcuts and all the ways around this city for a long time and i friends used to call me before before all the new stuff came in like the gps and all that and go i have to go to the the anaheim convention center what's the what way i take the 22 405 you know i knew all that stuff Mm so that's a real challenge driving and and trying to even park and just getting to something especially on a breaking story now you know because like like people are already there taking pictures and, and they're pretty good pictures on on these phones and stuff now. So, you know, it's stressful knowing that, wow, it's, something's going down right now and I'm on assignment to be there and a bunch of people are there and I'm not there yet and I can't get there any faster than I can. That mm-hmm. that That's kind of frustrating and very anxiety provoking.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of photographers that once they're once they clock out, that's it. They don't want to pick up a camera. They don't want to see a camera anymore. But I know you've been, you know, we're just a couple of blocks from Venice Beach. And I know you've you've been living here about 20 years. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen some of the photographs that you've made just for yourself. And I got to tell you that those are some beautiful, beautiful photographs. How important is that time that you have to just shoot what you want without a deadline, without some editor, without... You know, any expectation on someone else's part, uh, make in terms of how you see yourself as a photographer.
1: Boy, that that's a gift that keeps on giving right there for me. Um it it so I've lived I think last time I counted it was about seven hundred steps to the to the water, basically, in the sand. So I'm I'm photographing that area all the time for, for years now and it has really helped me to grow in a way that I never even imagined possible as a photographer. Because I had to start looking at something I was shooting every day and finding a different how to change it every tweak it each each time I'm out there and, and change the way the lighting is or pay attention to the fine nuances and things that before I just never did. I would get a shot somewhere that I thought looked cool and, and move on. And so I guess some people might call it mundane, but for me it it, it is. It's a creative outlet for sure because it it's usually, and thank you for the compliment. It means a lot to me, by the way. Um, it makes me feel good to take those photos. It's I try to capture beauty with them. That's my sole aim almost always when mm. I'm shooting in Venice. And there's parts of Venice that are not beautiful, but there's a part of Venice that is. And that's the part I go to just for my own self after a... After a long day of sh- driving around and lugging equipment and shooting and then being able to walk out to the beach here and, and you know, watch watch the sun go down and the waves breaking and, and it's, it's for me, it's therapy. And I used to go out there with no camera. I didn't because I didn't want to carry a lot of big, huge lenses around and Venice was a little more dangerous back then. I, I wanted to keep it low profile. I didn't want people to see me walking back to where I live because there were a lot of robberies yeah. and things. So you know the mobile phone photography is kind of what started that for me and i kind of got into the filters and hipstamatic and stuff and and i kind of liked it cuz it was just so different from what i was doing and then i started trying to get that hipstamatic look in my own fo- like photos naturally mm-hmm. which was like i don't do it ever but i'm trying to and it's it's improved my work i think in you know my appreciation of light in a whole different way and the subtleties and so I could go on all day about what that what what this beach has done for me and hopefully the photos you know I've, I've been able to help out with some of the local Venice uh, the Venice Family Clinic sold sold a photo of mine in their their big uh, fundraiser and so I'm trying to get back to the community here a little bit because I do love Venice a lot.
0: Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone. Someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why?
1: There's a photographer at the LA Times named Gennaro Molina.
0: Yes, I'm a big fan of Gennaro.
1: I love him as a human being, and I love his work even more. He's a master of light and emotion and... And I just recommend looking at everything he does, from a concert to a portrait to news. Everything he does, he has such a unique and beautiful style. And his light is so sublime, his, mm-hmm. his, his eye. So he's an amazing photographer and just a, a wonderful human being, too. So Great guy. Big I haven't fan. talked to him
0: in a long time. But he's one of those people who, I, when I looked at the paper, I would see the picture before I saw the, by, the byline. I'd go, let's on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, you can tell. Yeah, and it, and it was—he was one of the very few photojournalists that I that I saw when I first started seeing his work twenty years ago, where they had uh, a definitive style, but it was in the context of doing a story for a newspaper, which yeah. you usually don't jive the two. He and actually told he... me they had to—he he had to teach the
1: pre-press department how to do his photos because they—they weren't—they didn't know how to do them right. They were trying to do auto or something, and his—you know—when you're doing kind of work he's doing you don't want someone hitting auto auto levels on your photo right
0: yeah well he's great he's a great (laughs) recommendation so where can people go to find out more about you and your work well uh
1: i'm at jonathanalcorn.com but that's just basically my website um instagram uh jonathan underscore alcorn Uh, i try to post on there quite a bit and then uh you know i've if if you come if you want to email me or ask me any questions about beach photography I'm always open for that too emails are right on my website. And so. are you
0: still doing the workshops at the beach?
1: We're doing workshops. There's a lot going on. It's a, it's a good time. Okay, yeah, check it out, people. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much. Barry, next, thank you, my man.
0: Thanks again for joining me. Please remember that you do make a huge difference to our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store and make a small contribution to the show. It all goes a long way. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com and our music is from Kevin MacLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. The Candid Frame is a member of TWIP, a network of photo-related podcasts. You can find more great shows on your favorite topic by visiting thisweekinphoto.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.